can. You can use one of ours. If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible home. It's our, it's our gift to you. We're going to be camping out uh, in the first couple of chapters of Acts uh, this morning. Uh, before, we, before we do that, uh, I'm going to turn your attention to uh, Exodus chapter 32. Uh, the, the theme this morning uh, is transformation again. We're looking at our values, uh, the, the six different values that we uh, as SunWest hold, transformation being one of them. So we're diving into this value. What does it mean for us to be transformed as people? Uh, but this, this week we're talking about not only what it means to be transformed as people, but transforms as a people, as a community, as a church community. So the transformation happens inward with me, uh, but as soon as it happens inward, it moves from me to we. And so that's the title uh, of this morning, From Me to We. Exodus chapter 32 says this, Moses told them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says, each of you take your swords, go back and forth from one end of the camp to the other, kill everyone, even your brothers, friends, and neighbors. The Levites obeyed Moses' command, and about 3,000 people died that day. Amen. There you go. I hope you feel encouraged this morning. I just want to bless you and have a great week. So this event, Exodus chapter 32, happened after uh, the Israelites were freed from Egypt. Right, so if you know the story, the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. God sent a bunch of plagues, had used Moses and Aaron as leaders to help uh, bring liberation to the enslaved people. The last, the last plague that Moses gave was uh, the, the plague of the death of the firstborn son. So the, the angel of death would go from house to house, the tenth plague, and if you did not have the blood of the lamb smeared on your doorpost then uh, the angel of death would, would bring death to the firstborn son in that household. But the Jewish people did that. They put the, bl- the blood of the lamb on their doorpost, and the angel passed over that house. Everybody say, Passover. So for every year from that point on, the Israelite people would, would have a Passover meal in which they would remember and celebrate this moment in time where, by God's grace, they were spared. By God's grace, they were liberated, that they were called out of their slavery, and, they, and God formed them into, the, into, a, into a people, into a community. Fifty days later, they find themselves in the desert. Uh, Moses goes up to Mount Sinai and receives what at the top of Mount Sinai? The Ten Commandments, and even larger than that, the law, God's, God's law for his people, which included the Ten Commandments. And so... Moses gets the law, comes down from the mountain, and when the law came, uh, and he came down from the mountain, what did he find? He found that the, the, the Israelites were getting impatient, and they decided that they were going to make a golden calf and worship it, because that makes total sense. Uh, they grabbed all the earrings of the women, they melted the gold, and they made a golden calf out of the earrings. It's a lot of gold. I... I feel like I can make a golden calf at my own house, but uh, I'm just, <laughs> wow. <laughs> you know, as I'm looking in this part of the room, just talking this way. Anyways, it comes down, Moses comes down from the mountain, and they're, they're, they're worshiping this golden calf, and obviously, this offends God. Uh, Moses tells them, uh, on behalf of God, take your swords, go back, kill everyone, even your brothers, friends, neighbors, and 3,000 died. So I want you to tuck that away. And we're going we're gonna to reference the story in a second. So we come to the book of Acts. Last week, we looked at the end of John. Jesus is, is resurrected. He breathes new life into his disciples. His breath, uh, pneuma, the, the same word in the Greek for breath, for wind, and uh, for spirit. So he breathes his spirit into the disciples and it brings them alive. It gives them new life. Paul calls this the, they become a new creation. And Jesus is reenacting what God did in the original creation where God breathed into the dust of the earth and formed man and he breathed life into Adam. So Jesus does that to his disciples and he does that with you and I. 
And last week we mentioned that it is only through being transformed first in ourselves that we can be part of God's transforming work in this world. And it's only when we recognize a need for transformation that we can actually be transformed. So God doesn't just bulldoze His way into our lives and transform us without us knowing. He actually wants to be invited into our hearts, into our lives to transform us. He wants us to open ourselves so He can breathe His Spirit into, into us. And so when we turn to Jesus, when we recognize our need for Him, uh, and the Bible is very clear that, that, that people live in the darkness, that people are enslaved, uh, that people have sin, and He's wanting to bring us from darkness to light. He's wanting to bring us from slavery to liberation. He's wanting to bring us from sinfulness to holiness. There's, there's this condition that the human race is in, and Jesus invites us out of that place into a new place. And the New Testament calls this the new creation. He invites us to be a new people, a new creation. So this brings us to Acts, and, and we looked at Acts 1 verse 8 last week, um, just to help you remember, uh, it says, you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In Jerusalem, the significance of Jerusalem in this passage isn't that the temple is in Jerusalem, but that Jerusalem was going to be the place that the Holy Spirit was going to come. And so we see here that God has this missional invitation for His people. But the mission always starts with transformation inside. That Jerusalem is not as much a geographical reference as a reference of the point in time and the place where the people of God encountered the Spirit of God. So our inward transformation in Jerusalem, this, this experience, transformative experience we had with God in His Spirit where we opened our lives to Jesus and the good news, His Spirit comes and transforms us, and then from that place it moves out. And so we see that this is a prediction in Acts 1.8 of what, what is about to happen, and so we look at Acts 2. In Acts 2, it, it reads this, On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm that, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. Settled on each of them, period. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. So this passage begins with saying, at the time of Pentecost. At the time of Pentecost, and it was my understanding that Pentecost was, a, was this event that happened after the resurrection where the Holy Spirit came. And it's true, that's what it is. That's how Christians understand it. But what I didn't realize is that Pentecost was a, was a celebration, was a feast that the Jewish people celebrated from the point of Mount Sinai forward. That Pentecost, or in Hebrew they called it uh, Shavuot. Can you say Shavuot? Shavuot, or the Feast of Weeks, or in ancient Greek they called it Pentecost, was the point from 50 days, that's where we get the word 50, or penta is where we get the number 50 from, 50 days from Passover, from the liberation of the Jewish people, 50 days after Passover, the Israelites are at the base of Mount Sinai and they receive the law. And so just like from that point on, the, the Jewish people would celebrate Passover because it was the point where God spared them, where His grace came to them, they would also celebrate Shavuot 50 days after they celebrated Passover. Shavuot being the point where God's law came from the mountain to the people. The law was important for the Jewish people because it actually gave them an identity as a people. It, it allowed them to know who they were, how they were to function, what, how, how they were to live with one another, what their relationship was to God. How were they responsible to God and how they lived? What were their expectations of how God was going to meet with them and lead them? And, you know, the law describes them in their relationship with God as a covenant people. And so they would celebrate the giving of the Torah, the, the giving of the law, 50 days after Passover. And so we, hear, we see here, on the day of Pentecost, this happened. 
Not on, Pentecost not referring to the moment that's about to happen, but referring to this, this annual practice that the Jewish people were doing. So on this day, this Shavuot day, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like a roaring of mighty windstorm. It filled the house where they were sitting. And it describes you know, the wind and the flames. And if you read back into uh, Exodus, you can see a similar series of events on Mount Sinai. You know, this storm activity, these flames on the mountain, that God is showing up. And we see this echoed here again in Acts chapter 2. And everyone was present and was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them the ability. Verse 5 and 6, at that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. So when it says every nation came, do you think that's a literal every nation? Like, did the Mexicans make it out to this party? I don't know, what do you, what do you guys think? I, I don't think so. But what's the significance of every nation? In Matthew 24, uh, Mark 13, you'll, you'll recognize that Jesus says the end of the temple age was going to happen when the gospel was brought, the kingdom of God was brought to every nation. And so we see here this reference that God is bringing his people from one age into a new age, from an old creation to a new creation, from an old covenant to a new covenant, that the temple age as they understood it is now over. Every nation, a reference to this, this new point in history. You know, at, the, at that point, there was concentric circles of holiness going into the temple. So, uh, you know, in the middle was the, was the Holy of Holies, and one priest the high priest once a year would go into the Holy of Holies. He'd have a rope wrapped around his leg and, and a bell. And so if, if the people that were on the other end of the rope didn't hear the bell, uh, then they knew the guy died in the presence of God, and so they could pull his body back out. Um, so there's this one guy once a year under restrict circumstances got to hang out in the presence of God. You know, beyond that, you had another level that the other priests were allowed to function in, another level of holiness. Beyond that... You had this other level where the Jewish men were allowed to be. And then beyond that, you had another level where the Jewish women were allowed to function. And then outside of that, you had the Gentiles. And so up until this point, there was concentric levels of holiness in order to get close to the presence of God. The Jewish people kind of bought into this idea that it was, the point was always to get uh, to the, close, the closer you get to the, the presence of God, uh, but there were levels of holiness that you'd have to go through required to get there. But the thing is that God always wanted to break out of the temple. That God wanted His Spirit always to, to fill the earth, as we read in Revelation. Here we, we see this mark in Acts where the end of the temple age has come. Where the, the curtain that separated the Holy of Holies, where God's presence resided from the rest of the world, was split in half as we read in the Gospels. The curtain was split. God's Spirit went out. And when that happened, the people started to speak in other languages. Now, I believe in the supernatural gift of tongues. But what I want to focus this morning on is the fact that when God's Spirit showed up, this, the language that was spoken was not just some heavenly language that people didn't understand, but a contextualized language that other people understood. Now, I want to highlight a few marks of a transformed community this morning as we read through uh, this chapter in Acts. And the first mark is a transformed community knows that the love of God needs to be spoken in the language of other people. That when God's Spirit showed up, no longer did they have to jump through all these hoops to get to God's presence, but God's presence was actually invading in on them. So much so that God was going to bring His message through their own language in a supernatural, miraculous way. 
that the, the message of God, the Spirit of God actually invaded the world. It became contextualized in language. The love of God needs to be spoken in the language of other people. And we're going to unpack that even a bit more next week. But all that to say is that doesn't just mean learning how to speak um, Spanish. If we want to commute, communicate the gospel in, with Spanish-speaking people, although that might be what God's calling you to do, or Iraqi uh, with our newcomer family. I recognize that I need to speak a different language when I speak to my wife. I need to speak a different language when I speak to my six-year-old son. When I'm hanging out with high school students, I'm coaching a basketball team. I need to learn how to speak a different language. That my expectation is not for people to jump through a bunch of hoops for them to understand the gospel and the good news of Jesus is actually to contextualize the message in their language and in their world. That a transformed community knows that the love of God needs to be spoken in the language of other people. That's a mark of a transformed community. Acts 2, you know, Peter kind of goes on this, you know, he, he preaches and we're kind of picking this up at the end of, of, uh, of, of what he's saying to the people there. And he says, so let everyone in Israel know that for certain that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified to be both Lord and Messiah. Talking to the, the Jewish people. And Peter's words, it said, pierce their hearts. Can you say, pierce their hearts? And they said to him and to the other apostles, brothers, what should we do? Peter replied, each of you, say each of you. Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is just reiterating a point that we already made earlier, that the transformation starts with the piercing of the heart. Peter says, this Jesus whom you crucified. And we all have to come to this point in our lives if we want to be in relationship with God that we recognize it's our own brokenness, our own sin that actually put Jesus on the cross. And that pierces our hearts. And the incision that's made when that pierces our hearts gives way for the Holy Spirit to come in and transform us. That as an individual, we become grieved with the fact that of what we've done to Jesus, but we become grateful because of what he's done for us. And so our hearts become pierced. The Holy Spirit comes into our lives. And this is the beginning of transformation. And we respond as individuals. And it says each of them, each of them as an individual needs to repent, needs to come to Jesus, needs to recognize their need for Christ. But when we do that, everything changes. Second point, a transformed community recognize, recognizes I should have typed that better. A transformed community recognizes their need for Jesus, and that brings them together. Now, this is critical. I, I couldn't emphasize this more, that if Jesus is not, our need for Jesus is not the foundation of, of our community, we will perpetually hurt and disappoint one another. It is our need for Jesus that becomes our foundation. In fact, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a church leader uh, in the Second World War, uh, wrote this book. It's called Life Together. I can't, I can't recommend it uh, strongly enough. It's a great book. And he makes the point that our vision of community actually has the potential to destroy community. Let me read... Uh, yeah, here, here's a quote from the book. It says, He who loves his dream of community more than the Christian community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. And he goes on to basically describe that unless we come into community and recognize that the only reason we're in community is because of what Jesus has done, we will come into community with a certain expectation and vision for what this community ought to look like for me. And when we have this expectation of a community, we will always be hurt and disappointed. We will always be show, 
it will always be in a position of wanting. Is it okay if I read a bit more from this? Let me just read part of the section here. It's a... Uh, so like I said, he loves his dream of community more than Christian community itself becomes the destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. God hates visionary dreaming. So he's not talking about vision, like if you have vision, he's not saying God hates that, but he's speaking in the context of a community. He hates visionary dreaming that puts expectations on a community. It makes the dreamer proud and pretentious. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. He enters the community of Christians with his demands, sets up his own law, and judges the brethren and God himself accordingly. And he goes on to say, when his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. I don't know what that means, but I don't think it's a good thing. So he becomes first an accuser of his brethren then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. So Bonhoeffer is saying when you come into community with these expectations of what the community is going to be and what it's going to mean for you, he's like, you will find that it doesn't deliver. It won't ever deliver, and we'll talk about why in a second. But what happens is when we're left wanting is that we start pointing the finger at other people, and they're the reason why I'm not getting what I need. And then we start pointing the finger at God, he says, and, you know, God, you know, what's wrong? What's happening? It's your fault. And then he said, eventually, if this happens enough, we start looking in the mirror and we say, what's wrong with me? We start accusing ourselves. The only way we can actually engage in authentic, transformative community is if it's on the foundation of our, our collective need for Jesus. Because what happens is when we all need Jesus, we all understand that I need God's grace just as much as anybody else that positions me to extend grace to those I'm around. If I recognize that my dependency is on Jesus, it allows me to live interdependent with others. If your dependency is not on Jesus, you'll be tempted to live dependently on others or independently on your own. But a transformative community lives in an interdependent way. And interdependence, I would just simply say, is this, is this relationship of giving and receiving, that we, we're invited to be a part of a community in which we contrib contribute, but also a community in which we receive. But the only way that we live in that reality is if we collectively recognize our need for Jesus, and that becomes the foundation for every relationship. Moving on, verse uh, 39, uh, this promise is to you, to your children, and to those far away, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Then Peter continued preaching for a long time, strongly urging all his listeners, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Those who believed that what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day, about 3,000 in all. When's the last time we heard the number 3,000 this morning? When the law came from Mount Sinai, Israelites were worshiping the golden calf, and the, the Levites came and slaughtered 3,000 people. This happened on the celebration of Shavuot, uh, or marked the beginning of Shavuot, marked the beginning of a practice that they knew as Pentecost, where they recognized this community transformative moment where the law came down from the mountain and defined them as a people. Every 50 days after Passover, when they recognized that God had delivered them by His grace out of slavery, and then God had given them a covenant, a law, to define them as a people, uh, they would remember this, the moment where the, the law came down and the 3,000 were slaughtered. Now Jesus comes, and when Jesus comes, He redefines Passover. He says, you used to celebrate Passover because of this. But there's a different type of slavery that you're in. And I want to transform you from the inside out. And I am the new lamb of Passover. And he, he redefined it. And now we as Christians, as followers of Jesus, we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. Uh, and the Lord's Supper 
was given in the context of the Passover. When they came together for Passover before Jesus went to the cross, uh, that was the meal they were having, and Jesus redefines that meal and says, from now on, when you eat this bread, when you drink this wine, uh, remember me, my broken body, my spilt blood, this is a new covenant that I'm giving you. So Passover happens, Jesus redefines it. Fifty days later, we come to Shavuot, we come to Pentecost, and God's about to redefine it too. Instead of the law coming down from the mountain, given to a man to give to the people, Jesus brings His Spirit from heaven to earth. That the Spirit now becomes the defining mark of God's people. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, Jump ahead of myself. In 2 Corinthians 3, verse 6, it says that, that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul recognized when he wrote that, that there's something radically different that happens when the Spirit comes. He says that the law, the law was important and valuable because it made us aware of our sin. It made us aware of our brokenness. It made us aware that we needed a Messiah and a Savior. But it actually wasn't the remedy for what we needed. That the Spirit comes and reconciles, reconciles us to God because of what Jesus has done, that Jesus took our place. And because of that, the Spirit actually comes and restores us, renews us, brings us life. The Holy Spirit, throughout Scripture, or in the New Testament, Paul refers to the Holy Spirit as the parakletos, which means the one who comes alongside, an advocate, a helper, a comforter, a defender. And an advocate is one that pleads the cause of another, specifically one that pleads the cause before a tribunal or a judicial court, one that defends or maintains a cause or a proposal, one that supports or promotes the interests of the other. That God sent His Spirit to be our advocate. The name Satan means accuser. That Satan brings accusations against you and I, against God's people. When the Holy Spirit came within the lives and the hearts of the believers, did they become more accusational or did they become more of an advocate? See, a transformed community is full of advocates, not accusers. What does that mean? Last week we talked about that the Spirit came and made us a new creation. If I am your advocate, if God's Spirit is at work in my life, and I'm aligning with His Spirit and what He wants to do in your life, I'm advocating for you. I'm calling out the best in you. I don't want you to live as an old creation, but a new creation. Does that mean I don't challenge you? Absolutely not. You know, I, I had a couple people in my life even this week that, that challenged me that were advocates for me. I knew their heart was for me. I knew they wanted me to see, to, to move more into the person that God's calling me to be. When God's Spirit is in you, we become advocates for one another. We call out the new creation in one another. And at times that means challenging at times, it means encouraging, but it's always in the spirit that you're becoming more and more the person that God's called you to be. An advocate will call you to come clean and do right, but keeps coming back to making an argument on your behalf. An accuser can't see past your own sin, your own cycles of addiction, your own struggles, your own brokenness. An advocate can see who you're becoming. An accuser can see the worst of what you've done. An advocate sees the long story of your life. An accuser says, I know you're guilty, and they're willing to remind you of that often. But an advocate says, even though you're guilty, I'm on your side, and I want what's best for you. Bonhoeffer says that I must meet my brother only as the person that he already is in Christ's eye. 
An advocate recognizes the way that Jesus sees you and comes in alignment with the Spirit of God to call that identity out of you. So part of the question is, do you feel like in your life you have more advocates or accusers? That we as a church community, a transformed community, need to be advocates, not accusers. In the story on Sinai, we had Moses, this great man who went up to the mountain to get the law from God and to bring it down to everybody else. So here's a picture of the top of Mount Sinai, uh, the summit for Mount Sinai, the place where Moses had this encounter with God. How many times did Moses go up the mountain? Twice? See, I, always thought, I thought it was twice too. I, I, as I was reading through the Exodus account this week, it looks like Moses went up and down the mountain eight times. Moses was over 80 years old. I, you know, I'm, uh, I'm not that old. Uh, I went up a mountain just a couple weeks ago with a group of young guys. I was the old guy in the group. Uh, and I, I did okay for myself. I was in the, you know, I'm, I'm competitive, so even if I was dying, I was still not going to lose. Um, so I was in the, you know, a cluster of guys at the front of the pack, and uh, I was determined. And we, we, we hiked up this mountain, and I just went up one time, and I came down with a strong face on, but I could barely walk for the next three days. I tell you, my legs were just on fire, and like every step, my legs would shake. And it was going down the mountain that it actually, uh, if you've done much hiking, you know this, that it's often on the way down um, that it does the most uh, work for your legs. Moses goes up and down eight times, and uh, you know he's probably at this point in his life almost three times older than I am. I'm, I got huge respect for Moses, um, but I, I'm thankful to God that that wasn't his plan forever. I'm so glad that I don't have to go up and down a mountain to get the Word of God to bring to you guys each Sunday. I'm so glad. God knew that this was not a sustainable model to deliver His message. Moses is a tough guy, but he saw, you know, thousands of years down the road, and he was like, you know, that Matt guy, I don't think he can handle this. He's got, he needs a different avenue. At Pentecost, at the new covenant Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit came, God's Spirit didn't come to one man. It didn't, it didn't his word, his, his Spirit didn't come to one man who delivered the message to the people of God. His Spirit came to everybody, to each one, anyone who was willing to turn towards Jesus. And in the New Testament, Paul calls this the priesthood of all believers. And what he's referring to is what Moses did is the responsibility of every believer. What did Moses do as a priest? He goes up the mountain he brings forward his concerns about God's people and he, he intercedes on their behalf and he, he talks to God about them. God gives him a word to bring back to the people. And so Moses comes down the mountain and he represents God to the people and he's going back and forth representing people to God, representing God to people. And he does this over and over again in the Exodus account. Paul says, we've been made a priesthood of all believers. When the Spirit came upon us, it wasn't just some you know, high priest job to go and have this relationship with the Spirit. Uh, but the Spirit broke out of the temple. The, the temple is now actually the body of Christ, the collective body of Christ. The Spirit resides in each one of us. And what does that mean that we are now priests? It means that we are going back and forth with God and people, representing people to God, representing God to people. What happens when the Spirit comes in the story is a reenactment of Sinai, except instead of Moses, it happens to each one of the people in the story and each one of us. A transformed community is full of individuals who understand their priestly function. That you don't have to jump through all these hoops to get to God, that He's actually made His way to you. And so will you walk in relationship with Him, with intimacy with Him? That as a priest, you're also responsible of representing God to other people. 
Do you take this function seriously? Do you think it's only my job because I get on stage on Sunday and I speak that, you know, I'm functioning as a priest, I got to represent God to you, and I go on your behalf to represent you to God. You know, this is an old covenant model. And I pray for you, I do, but I hope I'm not the only one praying for you. I hope we're praying for each other because we can. A transformed community is full of individuals who understand their priestly function. You know, the theater does not do us any favors. The theater almost reinforces an old covenant mindset. You come and you sit here, you're kind of sitting in the dark, I'm standing up here in the light, and I'm speaking, and you're listening. This is why I love the 9 o'clock service, by the way. Um, I had, there was lots of people talking to me today, and I, was, I got a chance to listen. It was beautiful. Um, but it almost reinforces an old covenant mindset. And this is why it's critical for us to be in small groups and tra- of transformed communities uh, because we, hear, we each hear from God. And when we share together, we actually hear more clearly what God is saying. We can pray for one another. We bring each other's needs before God. We don't have to go before God just on our own. We actually have a community. We as a community, a priesthood community, go before God, bring our concerns, our cares, our requests toward, before God. Do you recognize your priestly function? A few more really quick. This is probably one of the most famous parts of Acts, uh, Acts 2. You've heard this probably many times. All believers. Say all believers. So it's important. That, that, that word's important because they came to be believers as individuals. God pierced their hearts. They responded as an individual, each one of them, it says. And then all believers collectively devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the sharing and meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. A deep sense of awe came over them all, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day, met in homes for the Lord's Supper, and shared their meals with great joy and generosity." All the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all the people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. There's so much packed into those verses and I can't, we don't have time to get into all of it. But I just want to highlight a couple of pieces here. uh, That a transformed community is full of individuals that take individual ownership for corporate life. They take individual ownership for corporate life. What does this mean? Well, on a very practical sense, uh, how many of you, let me just ask you, how many of you guys have been hurt by the church? That's okay. You can put up your hand up. I have. Put up your hand. Let's see it. How many of you guys have been blessed by the church? Okay, now let's recognize for a moment that you were hurt by an individual or a group of individuals. Yes? You were blessed by an individual or a group of individuals, correct? And then in our mind, and we, we hear this often, is like, well, the, the church did this, or the church, uh, the church is great, the church blessed me, or the church is like, what are we, what are we doing? We're, we're putting a corporate uh, reference to an individual experience. And this is not actually a bad thing. Over and over again in Scripture, God's people are referred to as a collective singular, the people of God, the church of God. We're, we're referred to as a singular people. We're the body of Christ, as it says in 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12, the body of Christ. We each have our part, but we're making up one unit. A transformed community recognizes that I as an individual take ownership for corporate life. What does this mean? Well, you know, it's, it's so much easier for me to read Bonhoeffer than to preach, so just allow me to, to read for you. Uh, and th- this is, I think this is big. This is in our individual culture. I, I, this is maybe one of the key points that we need to take away this morning is that an individual must realize that his hours of aloneness react upon the community. His hours of aloneness react upon the community. In his solitude, he can sunder and besmirch the fellowship, or he can strengthen and hallow it. I have no idea what the sentence means, uh, but we'll fill in the blanks as we read on. Every act of self-control of the Christian is also a service to the fellowship. 
Every time we live in a spirit of self-control, it actually has a benefit for the community you're a part of. On the other hand, there is no sin in thought, word, or deed, no matter how personal or secret, that does not inflict injury upon the whole fellowship. An element of sickness gets into the body. Perhaps nobody knows where it came from or in what member it has lodged, but the body is infected. This is the proper metaphor for the Christian community. We are members of a body, not only when we choose to be, but in our whole existence. Every member serves the whole body, either to its health or to its destruction. This is no mere theory. It is a spiritual reality, and the Christian community has often experienced its effects with disturbing clarity, sometimes destructively and sometimes fortunately. See, when folks come in, maybe they're visiting us as a community. There's people here this morning that you're visiting us. You're, you're checking out, you know, what is SunWest all about? And, you know, SunWest, this name that we give to this faith community. And what's going what, what's to happen is they will say, man, SunWest preaching is terrible. Um, and it might be that SunWest preaching is great, but you just came here on the Sunday where I was preaching. You might say, well, SunWest is so inhospitable. Well, what, what you're saying is maybe you had a conversation or you didn't have a conversation with some people that looked at you in the hallway and they didn't speak to you, but now you've attributed that, that experience with that individual and you've put that on us as a whole. Now, again, this isn't a bad thing. The importance here is that we recognize that when God, when we respond to God's grace, He calls us into community. And when He calls us into community, we have a responsibility not just as individuals, but we have a corporate responsibility. That the way that you live in your private life actually has an effect on us as a faith community. That what you're doing when you go home, you know, if every one of us went home and we actually spent daily time worshiping God, we were in accountable uh, small groups, that we were, were, were journaling and going to God's Word daily, and, we, and then we came together on the weekends, you know what effect that would have corporately? If we go away from this community and we're, you know, we, we just really think our relationship with God is about Sunday mornings and then we go and live however we want, making destructive choices maybe individually or as, you know, with my friends or our family or we're not prioritizing God's heart or will in our lives and then we come together on the weekends, it has an effect in our environment. That a transformed community is full of individuals that take individual ownership for corporate life. That before we say, ah, oh, you know, son was more like this, son was, you know, we recognize, no, if I was more like this, if I took more ownership, if I actually allowed God to transform my heart, we, it always starts with me and it goes out to we. Always. Secondly, a trans, or sixthly, sorry, a transformed community is marked by radical hospitality and generosity. I don't need a belabor this point, but just if you read through Acts 2, you'll see that radical generosity, they sold their possessions, they shared everything, that nobody was in need. Uh, Bonhoeffer says, so long as we eat our bread together, we shall have sufficient even with the least. Not until one person desires to keep his own bread for himself does hunger ensue. In the feeding of the 5,000, it was one boy that basically so chose to give all that he had to Jesus, and then Jesus did something miraculous with it. If he would have kept it to himself, nobody would have had anything. Bonhoeffer is saying in the early church here, everybody shared all they had. They had radical hospitality, radical generosity, and because of that, there was no need among them. Are we a radical? Are we radically hospitable? Are we radically generous? I think that's a, a great question for us as followers of Jesus. And then lastly, a transformed community is full of broken people in the process of being fixed. And I'm just referring, at the end of that Acts passage, it says, uh, and each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. I'm going to invite the worship team to the stage. Those who were being saved. You see, the reason our Bibles translate it being saved, and this saved word, it's the word sozo, meaning healed, 
saved, delivered. In the Greek form that it's in the context, it's sozo menus. So why is that even important? Um, because the form actually tells us something significant about the word. The reason we translate it being saved is because it's a, um, what is it? It's a present passive participle. So what that means is when something is in the present form in the Greek, it means that it's something that is ongoing. It's being, it's happening, it's started, but it's not finished. It's passive because it's not something that you do to yourself. We don't save ourselves, but God is doing the work in us. And a transformed community is full of broken people that have recognized, hey, I'm broken, but I'm in the process of being fixed. I'm broken, but I'm a new creation. I'm not defined by who I was. God's calling me to be somebody different and new. And He's actually given me the ability to transform through His Spirit. And so I am being saved. I'm being fixed. I'm being healed. And so with that comes a sense of humility in the community of God's people. Humility, but not this license just to stay the same. We extend grace always, but we also advocate and encourage one another to continue to be transformed. But it's never done in condemnation or accusation. It's always done in advocacy and encouragement and calling the best out of one another. So this morning, I hope that you feel called to become better versions of yourselves and recognize that when we become better versions of ourselves through God's Spirit, He's going to transform us as a community because He's moving from me to we. Would you stand up? Uh, Randall and the team is going to lead us in worship. As, uh, as Randall uh, continues to play... Um, and Fauna, you can play too. That would be, that'd be great. Because um, Fauna's great, isn't she? she uh, I'm going to invite our, our prayer teams forward. Uh, if you're on uh, Sunrise Prayer Team, I just invite you to the front. And um, I just, uh, we want to continue to make available the opportunity just to, to receive prayer uh, on Sundays. And part of the reason we do this is because of the effect that community has in our spiritual walk. You can go home and you can pray by yourself. As we learned today, that's totally fine and totally great. Uh, but God puts people in our lives so that we can experience Him through others in a unique way that we can't when we're in isolation by ourselves. And so we invite you to come forward and receive prayer in community uh, about anything going on in your life. I don't, I don't know where each of you are or what's... You know, there might be going, something going on at work or family. You might be out of work, and we'd love to pray for you about any of those things. Uh, you know, maybe as you've heard about uh, being transformed by the filling of the Spirit, uh, you, you, have, you just want to pray to receive God's Spirit in more fullness. We would invite you to come forward. We'd love to pray for you, for, for God's Spirit to, um, to fill you up, uh, to transform you from the inside out. Uh, maybe you've never... Uh, responded to the gospel before, the good news that says, you know, Jesus becomes our healer, he becomes our savior, our Messiah, and you recognize, you know, over the last couple of weeks that, you know, when Matt's talking about lostness and darkness, the need for transformation, I need that in my life, and I recognize that Jesus uh, is really the source of all eternal change, um, and I want my life to be forever changed. Uh, so maybe you're in that place this morning and you want to you begin that relationship with Jesus. We would invite you to come forward. We'd love to pray with you and start that journey with you. I would also say, um, if you're not involved in a small group, uh, we believe that this is critically important for transformation to actually take root in our lives. You know, if meeting together on a Sunday is great, um, but as we mentioned, it has its limitations and God's actually calling us into... Uh, into community that is transformative and the way that that happens is being in a room where we hear each other's stories, where we, where we know each other, where we can actually uh, pray for one another, where we can listen to one another, where we can share food together, where, we, uh, where families meet together, where, you know, I come to a small group and my kids have surrogate aunts and uncles and I unfortunately have to be aunts and uncles for their kids, uh, you know, and this is the beautiful thing that happens in community. Uh, and we believe that life change happens best in these types of communities. And if you're not in one, 
um, and you want to be transformed, it's important to make sure you're in one. Uh, so if you're interested in joining a small group, uh, you can just go to the Welcome Center and say, hey, I, I want to be in a small group, and we'll do our best to try and uh, connect you as soon as possible in a community like that. Uh, so let me pray. Uh, and again, uh, when I'm done praying, please uh, feel free to come forward. We would love to pray with you about anything. God, we thank you that we don't live in the old covenant that uh, I personally thank you. I don't have to go up and down the mountain every week. Um, you know, but seriously, we just thank you that your spirit has not stayed in some temple and some holy of holies, but you've, um, you've just broken down every barrier between us and yourself. Uh, Lord, that you're not content for us to stay the same or for us to stay stuck, but you want to bring transformation in our lives. And Lord, you're not even content for that to stay there, but you want to bring transformation in our world. Uh, so Lord, I pray that our hearts would be pierced this morning with the reality uh, that you went to the cross because of us. But Lord, that we get to have new life because of you. And so we just embrace, Lord, uh, the gift that you give us this morning, uh, the gift of your spirit that's made available through your son, Lord, that you want such an intimate relationship with us, that you've uh, done everything that you could do uh, to ensure that that could happen. And Lord, our part is simply to turn towards you, um, to bend our knee towards you, to give, a, to give you reign in our lives. And we say, yes, Jesus. Yes, we bend our knee to you. Yes, we give you reign in our lives. You are Lord of our life. Would you come and make us more like you? And Lord, as you make us more like you, would you help us to become transformative um, in the places that you have us? Lord, this is our desire. Uh, and Lord, we know it's the desire in your heart. So we just say yes to that, Lord. Come, come, Lord Jesus, come. In Jesus' name, amen. Please come forward. We'd love to pray for you again. Uh, have a great week. Uh, we'll see you next week as we wrap up our series uh, on transformation.